Hey, it's Eric G. Around the House is sponsored by Baldwin Hardware. For 75 years, Baldwin Hardware has been known for its first-class quality and craftsmanship in door and cabinetry hardware. As an alumnus of the Baldwin Hardware Design Council, I can say I have seen the details and quality from design to the finished product. If you're looking for a new style and old-world craftsmanship, I can tell you there is only one Baldwin Hardware. Check out what would look great in your home at baldwinhardware.com. It's Around the House. Depends on, do they want a traditional a system, which might be like a gas furnace and a traditional air conditioner with it, and ducted? Or do they want to move towards our systems with a ducted system, but variable speed, variable capacity? Or do they want to go with a system that is all ductless, which is still a high force heat pump, or a hybrid of both, some ducted, some ductless, like I did in my house. And it doesn't matter what size your house is, we do skyscrapers with, with our, our heat pumps. Whether it's a, a huge building, a school, hotels, all of those are done, can be done with high performance heat pumps. And as we see the move towards decarbonization and electrifying the grid, more home builders and definitely more cities are pushing for heat pumps. When it comes to remodeling and renovating your home, there is a lot to know, but we've got you covered. This is Around the House. Welcome to Around the House with Eric G and Caroline B. This is where we talk everything about your home every single weekend. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Caroline. Hello, everybody. How is everybody this week? Saturday comes so That's fast. A great week, doesn't it? It's like, what happened? We're here on the Saturday which means we got some great stuff to talk about. And uh, we've got a great guest on today, Chad Gillespie with Metis. And by the way, what's Metis mean? <laughs> hey, guys, how you doing? Uh, it, it is Metis is short for Mitsubishi Electric Train US. We entered into a joint partnership Mitsubishi Electric did several years ago with mostly for commercial purposes, uh, they have a great commercial team that allowed us to sell our, our commercial products exclusively through the commercial side of it. And then again, it allowed us to sell branded product of Mitsubishi's through the American Standard and the trade channels on top of selling to all of our legacy distributors we've had for the last 35 plus. Nice, man. Well, welcome to the show. It's time we talk everything inside right now because we're coming into that time. It's, we've got the seasons are changing. It's funny. I'm in the Pacific Northwest here, so we've been pretty cool over the last little bit while Caroline's wishing she had a pool out back oh, because it's so warm. It's warm and humid. It's getting into that time where people are starting to think about getting cool inside and bringing that uh, comfortable weather inside. Sure. And Chad and I were talking and, and developed a relationship because one of my clients had a, had a humidity issue that was infesting the home, and they also had mini splits. So Chad and I kind of put our heads together and we had to come up with a solution to sort of help my client. So we started talking and I'm like, you need to come on the show and talk about mini splits and all the things that you do because it's important. Absolutely. Man, and those, those have changed how we look at homes over the years. So you look at how many old houses out there that it would take a significant remodel to go in and put a typical central heating and cooling system in with ducts and forced air and forced all of that throughout the house, the mini splits has really changed how you can do indoor comfort within that home. Yes, it, that is correct. It is, when we started here, I mean, it's over 40 years now, but it really started with a wall hung, what everyone kind of considers as a mini split. And that developed into a, a pretty broad platform of products. And the mini split category is, is we're trying to really kind of evolve the name of that because the mini split is now not just a wall hung. It's a, it's a, a, a ductless product or a ducted product, but they're all based upon a variable speed compressor outdoor unit. So like Mitsubishi or, or the other big names we, we all know, that category really covers more than just the, the wall hung. But what they all now have is that variable speed capacity compressor, and it gives you any, again, for a Wong or any type of uh, ductless unit, incredibly efficient performance. So yeah, it's changed a lot here in the last four years. For our clients who are just familiar with air conditioning units, right? A lot of people just think of portables or they think of HVAC. They don't really understand what a mini split is. 
Can you explain it to them and how you would utilize a mini split in your house and, and why you might need one? Sure. So when we talk about mini splits, most mini splits, what we call variable capacity heat pumps, most all of these systems are heat pumps. And so what a heat pump is, it does cooling and heating, and it's basically an air conditioner running in reverse. And that's exactly the actual, the refrigeration cycle is exactly the same, just backwards. So in the summer, when you have a traditional air conditioner, it is actually pulling heat out of the indoor space and rejecting that outside and that outdoor unit that you see beside your house. And what we can still do is we can still pull and move heat no matter what the temperature is, even down to like negative 13 degrees. So you get this air conditioner with our systems, you get an air conditioner in the summer. And then in the fall season, when it starts to get chilly, you can switch that over to heating mode and it does just the opposite. So it's actually extracting heat from the outdoors and through the refrigerant line, that's what connects your outdoor unit inside unit. It brings heat from the outside into the indoors and then blows it out. And, and why it's pretty cool is that most heat pumps that we're used to when we talk about heat pumps really stop being effective under 45 degrees. These variable speed heat, heat pumps can function in a standard unit heating down to 17 degrees with 100% of their capacity. And then you have cold climate heat pumps, which we offer quite a bit. We call ours the hyperheat system. They'll offer 100% heating down to zero degrees, approximately Fahrenheit. Amazing. So it is, it is. And even negative 13 degrees, you'll get probably 80% of your capacity of heating. So it really, they've come a long ways. Most people who've had an older heat pump, just think of lukewarm air coming out of your, they're now we're seeing you know, temperatures of 130, 140 degrees. So you're really getting really warm heat. So, you know, the, the heat pump, people have to kind of rethink how that works if they're comfortable. And I'm sure that you both have had on your show, people complaining about the old style heat pumps. Today's are definitely very different. I remember as a kid, we had a heat pump that we put in the house and this would have been in the, the late 80s. And I'm going to date myself here, but I remember my mom always looking, walking by the thermostat and it was on an addition we did to the house. So it wasn't the entire house, but that whole area, she'd walk by and see that little red light in the thermostat when it was 32 degrees outside. She'd be like, that's going to cost us money. That's right. Because it was in the emergency heat, <laughs> room, heat mode back then. And now that's just basically electric heat going on at that point. She was just shaking her head going, well, hopefully it warms up outside because that's getting more expensive. Yes. So that's a great point. And this is the, 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 some of the old ideas of heat pumps. That's exactly right. My parents had it too. And when the emergency heat comes on because the heat, cup, heat pump can't function at below 40 degrees, the old style, you would have to have electric resistance heat, which is the most inefficient. It's like for every watt you, you put in, you get a watt out. Whereas heat pumps and get the four times that for every watt put in of, of heat discharge. But you know, the other thing is, is comfort. The old style heat pumps were putting out air that might've been, let's just say, let's just say it was 96 degrees or, or 95 degrees, which that still seems pretty warm, but because the human body is 98 plus degrees, anything that hits the surface of the, of the skin, which is below that temperature is going to feel cool. Cool. And mm -hmm. so even though old heat pumps could heat your house, if you put your foot but near a register, and especially if you had floor registers like my parents in their kitchen, they would always say, oh, it's blowing cold air. It's not blowing cold air. It's just not above 98.6. So, gotcha. so now today's heat pumps, whether they're ducted or ductless, are, are definitely, you're going to feel hot air in, in heating mode and very cold air. But flexibility, we can, yes, we can talk about all the different ways we can use these for your clients because there are many, there's so many applications. And, and we know even today, builders are building houses that have hot spots and cold spots and people are uncomfortable. We know that People are also building additions uh, or they're expanding rooms or changing rooms so they can use as offices. With COVID, that's changed a lot. So we've seen a lot of applications. No question. One little thing I wanted to revisit on that with the heat pumps, and that's where I think the, the adage that people would go, I don't want to put a heat pump in. I just like the warm heat of gas, right? So they, they had a gas furnace. They loved that 130 degree heat coming out of it where the old heat pumps were putting it out at, like you said, was putting cool air. Now you've got a heat pump that can put out similar heat to gas that gives you that same quote unquote feel because you actually feel the heat. Yes, it is. That's the biggest thing. And once, once you, you get used, once you've been in someone's house who has it, 
you'll know. And, and my family wasn't convinced because of being in my parents' house. And then we did our whole house and we did ductless downstairs and then we did ducted upstairs and the house is always comfortable. And, and so again, it's not, and I live in Virginia, so it does get down in the low digits, but again, as long as it's sized properly, you will be comfortable. So that takes me to my next question about size. So when we're building houses or a lot of applications where I see um, mini splits is in like a lead building or an energy efficient build. Are there any stipulations? So when someone's building, having a new build, is there a size? Does it get too big to have mini splits? I've seen houses that are 3000 square feet that have all mini split systems and it works fine. So wh- how do people make this decision? Do I go with an HVAC system? Do I go with a mini split? Where in a new build, how do they decide which one's better for their application? So like when we you know, to clarify that if they're getting an HVAC system, it just decide, depends on, do they want a traditional a system, which might be like a gas furnace and a traditional air conditioner with it inducted, or do they want to move towards our systems with a ducted system, but variable speed, variable capacity, or do they want to go with a system that is all ductless, which is still a high force heat pump or a hybrid of both, some ducted, some ductless, like I did in my house. And it doesn't matter what size your house is. We do skyscrapers with, with our, our heat pumps, whether it's a, a huge building, a school, hotels, all of those are done, can be done with high performance heat pumps. And as we see the move towards decarbonization and electrifying the grid, more home builders and definitely more cities are pushing for heat pumps. So a homeowner, unless you're in a, in a zone, like if you're in, in, in certain parts of Wisconsin and North Dakota, you, you could use our systems, but you may need some type of backup heat. And, but other than that, really anywhere, it doesn't matter how cold or how hot it is. We've used them in every state and I mean, they're all over the world. I mean, it, it's amazing how small a percentage of variable speed capacity heat pumps are used in the U.S. compared to everywhere else on the planet. That is mostly because we build big houses and we had cheap energy for so long and people don't really care about it. But as we start to see energy change and it will evolve when we're in a weird time now with the right. crisis. Gas prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what we'll, we'll see is no matter what happens with inflation, that will, you know, regulate itself over time. With Ukraine, which is very specific to our time now, we're seeing a lot of gas being needed from, from the U.S. So we're exporting a lot of natural gas to Europe right now to help offset that. This is where we see wanting to be more energy independent. And we can move to a more renewable grid, still have gas production at the, the power plants, but we need to, to kind of diversify that energy portfolio. And what that will do is give us more energy independence. And the move to heat pumps is a big part of that. And what a lot of people ask for, like, well, why, if you're still advocating for some use of natural gas, which I am, they're like, why use it at a natural plant versus at the home? And the big thing with that is there's two big parts of that. First of all, the healthy part, you, you have a combustion piece of machinery in your house. It's just a fact. And so whether it's a, yep. it's a gas furnace or if it's a natural gas you know, stove or fireplace, you are burning fuel in your house. And that does not give off the best things to breathe. And we can go through that segment later, but that's really important. And so the second part of this is that production in a power plant allows, as we you know, see more and better techniques of carbon sequestration, that basically is going to take that extra carbon produced by burning that fossil fuel and they can capture that. And as technology gets better and better, it's safer and safer. So we don't pump all that extra CO2 into the environment. So it's a double win. And again, it's a process because again, we don't want to completely crush the U.S. market and just say go all electric because that would be silly to do it in five years. But you'll be surprised how much this good we're going to gain in 10 years. And I like the issue of of carbon monoxide just by itself, because anytime you have these combustibles, we have to worry about carbon monoxide poisoning. And so that removes a big piece of that for me as a healthy home expert, because Eric and I talk about it a lot, that you don't have to have this huge leak to be very sick from having just a slight one part per billion of carbon monoxide can do damage over a period of time. And so a lot of my clients have leaks and it's a big issue. So that would remove that piece of it for me. Yeah, it's it's amazing out there because 
I'm out on the West Coast, so we have issues out here as well where we have power outages and wildfires and things like that. So I do like, like, for instance, we had an issue out here, for instance, last year we had a ice storm and I have a really good friend that lives next town over. The power didn't go to the natural gas pumping plant that actually is that station. So they lost their natural gas heat in the power outage as well. So they had, their neighbor had a heat pump and they were running it on their generator that was running on gas, but they had heat. But ironically, they had natural gas and didn't have it because uh, they did not have power to the distribution center for natural gas in that area. Yeah, it's ironic because it is like when we think about, we've had issues with certainly with uh, like in California with power lines and, and different things. Those are, are instances where some oversight would have probably prevented that if the power company had taken some precautions. But you're right, like in the, in the recent Denver fires, that was it, having natural gas actually was a problem. What they're looking to do outside of Denver and where they have these fires is, is definitely incentivize moving all electric. And one, because it's safer, but two, when we look at this, we have the opportunity to move to electric and think about that storm. If you have a really a low consuming house that does not use a lot of electricity because it's, it's all electric and you do have, if you have solar, you have a renewable, which Colorado has plenty of opportunity for that. But let's just say that if the power goes out, a small generator does not take a lot on a high performance house, especially these mini splits. We don't really use hardly any power to heat these. So like I live in, in Virginia, but just outside of, of Richmond where I live, it's rural very quickly and people lose power all the time. And so again, making that right transition from, from gas to electric is, is, is a process that needs to be done with, with smart, but it is, it is the pathway forward because we're really not going to knock out internal combustion engines that, that, that those cars are going to be around for a long time. And yep. what we can do is that we can adjust how our buildings use energy. And right now it, it is 40% of our, our load in the United States is, is heating and cooling buildings. So. We have this opportunity to, as we build new, new renewables, and I use this, I've, I've said this recently, so our family can spend a couple, maybe I think it's three pennies per kilowatt in Richmond to get all of our power from renewable production in Virginia. Now, <laughs> I live in Southern Virginia, and it's not like it's, we're not talking about California, who's uber forward thinking. But what we do have is a lot of small farms and land that were no, not really viable farms anymore, where I grew up. They're now, now solar farms. So all around Central and, and, and Southern Virginia, you're starting to see these solar farms and, and wind out in the mountains that are now producing renewable energy. So moving to electric is actually is a plus. We've seen more volatility in natural gas, not just gas at the pump, but natural gas in the last six months than we've seen in probably 25 years. And sure. it's pretty crazy. And that's not, from, that's not because the current administration says we're not drilling. This is because... There is a tremendous demand and the demand in Europe is taking a lot of our exports. Yeah, our, our electricity rates out here in the Pacific Northwest where I'm at is cheap because we got wind farms everywhere. We got a nuclear power plant and dams on the Columbia that are pumping electricity yeah. out. So there's a huge difference here between our electricity and our natural gas rates. But one thing that I wanted to ask you that's interesting, we had this last year, Portland, Oregon is in our local area had an interesting thing. About half of our community here does not, in this metro area, have air conditioning in their homes. <laughs> but last year, we broke a record oh my uh, God. of all Oregon and had 117 yes. degrees. Yes. And sadly, we had hundreds of people perish in their homes from heat exhaustion. Yep. So when you're planning out a system like that, how much of a temperature difference do you get with like a mini split? Because that is, to be honest outside of what most people plan mini splits for, because especially this far north, this is no. not Las Vegas or, or Phoenix. No. What can you expect out of a mini split on the cooling side of things when you live in these kind of areas? Yes, it's, it's fun. It, generally, you're, you're going to be fine. I mean, we have air conditioners everywhere. I mean, their air conditioners are, are in Vegas. They are in, you know, Arizona. That was a, an anomaly, right? But it did happen. Sure. So, yeah. well, in most of our systems were fine throughout that, 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 that time. One of my team lives in Seattle and he had a customer that they had used the, they had put the outdoor unit actually inside of a shed. 
And now it can work because it still pulls in air. And that shed had like a, it had some ventilation like through the, the eaves. So it did get some air. It's not an optimal, we don't recommend it. But he calls one of my team members and says, hey, your system isn't pumping out air. And, and Greg's like, well, what's the internal temperature of that shed? And he goes, it's like 135. Really, not many systems on the planet are rated for 135. So, but cooling one can't even walk in that shed. I mean, when you figure an attic, an attic, it's up to ridiculous temperatures. But that's generally you're not putting your outdoor yeah. unit in there. It, it's meant to operate exactly yeah, into like up to 110, 112 is like normal operating kind of you know limits. It can go again. It can go higher, but it, it, it's not. It's not intended to go on up to 135 and continue to cool. So pretty crazy, but it, it's not designed for the surface temps of that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. I was like putting it on a Venus or Mercury, but, and this is the thing, it's not really that much harder to design our systems at all. When you're talking about a whole house, there are heat pumps, the load of your house, it, it requires a certain amount and you design our systems there. But for, for really for the, what we do majority of our business, which is hot spots and cold spots, room additions, sunrooms, that, that is really, that's where most of our, our, our use. It's still, we would like to see contractors do a load calculation on a, on a, on a new sunroom. Most of the time they don't, they just know that they always put a two ton or a one ton in that space. And, and most of the time that works. Now, the problem we're seeing today sometimes is that let's just say that you have a space in your house and the contractors usually put a two ton unit in this house. He's looked at it and said, okay, it's X amount of square feet. That's two tons. The problem today is that some houses aren't even using a quarter of that. And they're such high performing homes compared to what we built in the 18, 1900s, even until the 1950s, where we didn't have insulation in walls. We had very leaky houses. So they just kind of put lick their belt and put it in the air and go, ah, it's about four tons. And we really... Yeah, as, as Caroline knows too, that is not what you want to do when you're They're trying to, I, we think this is the most critical part of your house, the, the lungs of the house. You really want to get that right because again, mini splits, if they're not sized properly, if you're using an older mini split, we'll talk about that because this is how Caroline and I started talking. You, you don't want to get elevated humidity because that is what you guys know is the biggest problem in a house is making sure that you get humidity levels correct. And well, Chad, I'm seeing out there, and this is a trend that I'm seeing on social media now, because I'm in a bunch of the different home improvement closed groups out there, whether it's an old house or even our own around the house nation. I'm seeing people out there that are getting the DIY kits offline and putting in their own thing. And they're doing the same thing going, ah, it should work. Yeah. And then they're complaining how mini splits don't work. And I'm like, you bought something that has the BTUs of a window air conditioner and you're expecting that to take care of the, that, that whole entire floor. You didn't calculate anything out. You just bought what you could afford and expected that to perform. Yeah. I, and I, I understand consumers wanting to have something that, you know, if they do a lot of stuff themselves, and they, and they enjoy doing work on their houses. And I, and I do. I do a lot of work. I don't yes, tell us, Chad. <laughs> Chad has secrets, everyone. Secrets out there. So I have, like this, the I have this, this, I wouldn't really call it a fetish, but it's like my mom loves it when she, when I, she calls me and she's like, what built-ins have you built now? Because I have this thing about building built-in cabinetry. Number one, I like it because it's really cool and clean looking. And if you use cool looking woods, it's really awesome. But to me, especially having young kids, if, if they have a place to put things behind a cabinet, then there's a good chance they could. Now, if they don't, then it gets tossed in a closet. So I built more built-ins in the last two houses. Probably most people don't like that. Yeah. So I do like that organization, but I will not mess with HVAC. I, I've worked for Mitsubishi for almost 11 years. That's not one thing that I will try to install myself. And it's also not something that I design. We have really great energy experts and designers, HVAC installers that do a great job of doing a load calculation on the house and then laying out the house. And, and as a consumer, try to do it yourself. You will fall into a lot of problems. If you're trying to connect the, the an indoor and outdoor unit, there's things that you have to do that unless you have all the equipment, it, it, it's not going to work. You have to make sure that all the contaminants are out of the system. 
because that re- that refrigerant will not work properly. And if you have contaminants, then you you know get a clog, and all of a sudden the system goes bad. And that's not the manufacturer's fault. Uh, that's that's a homeowner trying to do a professional contractor's job. The part about sizing, it's it's actually the worst is when they oversize, because yeah, oversize the AC, it doesn't run long enough to remove moisture, and so. When we have humidity issues, and this is what Carolina, you know, first started talking about, having an oversized mini split or just an oversized air conditioner, not, not, not just a mini split, it will not run long enough to wring out all the moisture in that hole. And then you get those high humidity levels and then you start getting mold. And that's just a science fact. It just So for all of our listeners, bigger is not better. You think that you're going to go get this bigger unit that's more expensive. You're going to have the coolest house on the block. It doesn't work that way. The longer that system runs, the more time it takes out that damp feeling that you have in the air. If you just quick hit your temperature, so say the unit runs for five minutes and all of a sudden you're at 72 and the unit shuts off, you've gotten down to that temperature that you can look at a thermometer and say, oh, it's 72, but you haven't removed that feeling, that humidity feeling that makes you hot. And that's what causes the mold issue. So it's hard for people to understand because I like to simplify it because customers don't, they don't know the difference between sensible and latent heat. And, and you can explain it to them if you want, Chad, in a fun way, yeah. but you know, what's the difference? So that, those are all because of what you do. It, 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 it's so nice to hear because it, this is a lot of times our, our contractors do just the opposite. If they go to a house and they go, right now, Mr. Ms. Smith, you have a, a three-ton system, but let's just put a three and a half ton just in case. And, and then five years later, another contractor might come in and go, let's just put a four-ton in instead of a three and a half ton. <laughs> the creep. The creep. creep. Yep. And so, and it is. And so one thing that we'll notice with, so you have sensible is what you feel, is what you, you actually, so that's the temperature you feel. Latent is the amount of moisture that an air conditioner will remove. So there's a ratio of that. And older systems did a better job of removing more moisture than some of today's higher SEER systems. So your contractor has to be really smart and look at that ratio because if they get a really high SEER system that is like, oh, it's so super efficient, but it doesn't wring out a lot of moisture as much as your old system did, you may be uncomfortable because it might say 72 but your moisture, your your might be up ten percent, and if it's up ten percent and it still says seventy two, you will be uncomfortable. And I think that's where contractors have to pay attention to that because you will get molds from, from from the extra moisture, and your homeowners will not be comfortable. Yeah, my brother just had that happen in his house. They had uh, before he got it about ten years ago, nineteen early twenties house. So it's three stories, the big farmhouse. It was one of the old big Sears farmhouses and super cool place, but they did a bunch of over the years that he's owned it. They've done a bunch of energy efficient <laughs> projects in the house. Like they had area, uh, an area that wasn't insulated where they did spray foam. All of a sudden they completely changed the heating and cooling system up there. And then they realized that they were short cycling that unit so badly that it burned it up early. And of course, now they're putting in a unit that's literally half the size because it was oversized for a very inefficient house. It was it was oversized to begin with. And then he closed the house up and made it really efficient, as as good as you're going to without me yeah. reframing yeah. and stuff, but did as much as he could sensibly. And all of a sudden, he created a whole other HVAC problem within his house. Absolutely. And that, that's a great point because we are trying to make our houses more efficient. But if adding that extra insulation, especially if you're doing some spray foam and you're cutting down on how much air is escaping from the house or coming in like fresh air, old houses didn't have that mechanical ventilation, then you're going to get a lot of problems that Carolyn was talking about. If you have combustion, you know, equipment in your house and a lot of that carbon monoxide is present, it's not escape. That extra air sealing needs, you know, you have to think about this as the house as a system. The one thing back to comfort, even before we go to that part about the health of, of, of doing upgrades to your house is what we call mean radiant temperature. And, and this is something that even a lot of HVAC contractors don't know and really don't understand and certainly don't know how to address it. And sometimes your thermostat says 72 degrees because the air is 72 degrees and you're still at optimal humidity. So everything should be great. But for some reason, you're just not comfortable. And what mean radiant temperature is for your listeners if you think about the fact the air is 72 degrees because that air conditioner just blasted it out 
and now the air is 72 degrees, the walls, the surfaces, your counters, they are not 72 degrees. And in the winter, they're all very cold. So you may say 72, but all the radiant energy from your walls and surfaces are gonna make you colder. And that is the other problem with oversizing. If your system doesn't consistently run, and like our fans always run in, in, in variable speed capacity systems. So they're always conditioning not only the air, but that's also conditioning the surfaces. So you get better comfort versus having an oversized air conditioner that just blasts out for two minutes and then shuts off because these surfaces never get colder in air conditioning. So that's part of what contractors have to deal with. They have a really tough job of trying to get people comfortable when they're starting to change variables, like you said, in the farmhouse, lots of extra insulation, air sealing, because the whole load profile has changed. And this is huge with energy efficiency because when you feel cold, so when your temperature thermometer hits 72 and you look at it and go, God, I still feel cold because everything around you is throwing off this cold environment, putting cold into the environment. Guess what you're apt to do? Hit the thermometer and and turn it up. And so that's why that becomes an issue. And so when you're in the house, sometimes when you say, well, it's 72 in here, but I feel cold, that's where it's coming from. It's just bleeding off of all the other surfaces and making that air feel much cooler. Hmm. Well, great example in my house, it's a 1977 house. So I got a two by four frame with 1977 fiberglass bats insulation on that wall. And my kitchen, which has a slab porcelain countertop, and I got tile walls up there on that area underneath the cabinets, my little weather station will sit there and say that it's 64 degrees right there in the wintertime. But if I walk around the corner eight feet away and look at the thermostat, it's set at seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a perfect example of that where, where I'm losing so much heat loss because I've got a kitchen window there, everything else. That is a cold spot compared to where that hot spot is. Yeah. Yeah. Ther- even like you said, the thermostat, just the place of the thermostat is a common issue. Most people want to put it out in the hallway where the return was. And that's understandable because that's where the return air is coming back to the system in, in a traditional system. Or if we're using multiple mini splits, whether they're wall hungs or we're using smaller ducted systems, like a system, instead of the air handler being the big one that's in your garage, and we have some ones that are small, like the size of a suitcase, we'll have three of those in a house or four of those because each of those zones is broken up to whether it's first floor, second floor, or where you get a lot of sun, where you don't get a lot of sun, but we'll have four thermostats that are monitoring all those different areas so that it's regulating that versus having one thermostat with one giant system in the middle of the house doing two floors and you're never comfortable because you'll see six to eight degree swings from first floor to second floor. So in the house we were discussing, one of my clients, it was, I think the house was about 3000 square feet and we had... I want to say six. So we actually had six mini splits. So just for the audience to get an idea, it's it's very different than just thinking about it, your traditional forced tight air system where you have maybe two zones. You'll have six different units placed throughout the structure. And depending if you have a first floor, second floor, open floor plan, that will kind of help to regulate that space. It will. And, and this is the thing, you know, most my team does mostly high performance, new construction homes and custom builders. But we certainly get in different projects, retrofits. But we think about our, our core business at Mitsubishi, we're mostly that older retrofit you know, type of home. Like the Northeast is our biggest market. Those houses don't have ductwork. Uh, a lot of them have oil, no air conditioning, and now need air conditioning. And so they're trying to figure out how, how to, to design for these houses. And a lot of times, as Eric said, putting in a giant ductwork system into a, a house built in the 30s that doesn't have ductwork is... is crazy expensive. But then if you have like a 10 room house, you'd also don't want to put 10 wall hungs in that house. So now you're this trying to figure out how to use like six in a 10 room house. And, and, and that it definitely works. We do it all the time, but you have to be aware of, you don't want to have, if you have a bathroom that's fairly good size, you, you don't necessarily want to put a wall hung in there, but if it's fairly good size and it has a big window that's not insulated or it gets a lot of sun, and it's because it's an on exterior wall, that bathroom has load. It, it's going to need something. So there's either two things. You either figure out how to run a small ducted system to drop a vent into that bathroom, or you try to use a small air share fan to try to pull some air into that and let that get some heat from the bedroom that already has a mini split wall hung in there. So, but again, interior 
Well, interior rooms don't really matter. If you have a bathroom that's an interior, you don't need a, a wall hung in there. Using your bath fan is going to extract air and it'll help pull conditioned air in, but it's not seeing any load from around the walls because they're all conditioned rooms. So there is a balance. And this is the thing is having a good contractor that has been trained in how to design these and work with a customer it is really important. I want to talk about maintenance for a second, Chad, because I've seen older mini split units where somebody hasn't cleaned them forever. You open it up and it looks like it's underneath your refrigerator filled with dust bunnies, right? Exactly. And it it's like, wow, that's a really cool dark gray Mexican blanket you got woven there. Yes. But that's not what you're looking for. What do you see out there with maintenance with these things? Because I know it's an issue where people don't want to get up in a ladder. Sometimes they put them up high in the ceiling in that old house and they just get forgotten. I'm still chuffing about your gray Mexican blanket because that's exactly what it looks like. Because I'm, I'm, I have a picture that I've sent to customers and to family members about how you, why you need to maintain these. And the best thing to do is when your contractor installs this is get a maintenance agreement and just have them come out once a year. And the thing of it is, is that that, that, that blower wheel can certainly get any type of particulate matter on there and grow mold. It, 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 it can. And we've come out with a process that we, we put that coating on our, and in the interior of our units to prevent that type of, you know, growth. So, but that doesn't mean you don't have to clean it. You are going to have to, just like any HVAC system, any, anybody's uh, or any type of system, you have to maintain it. You have to make sure the blower wheel is clean, the coil is clean. If, it, if it's not, it will function properly. So, so there is maintenance. And, and, and again, I can't say enough that the best thing to do is just get a very inexpensive maintenance agreement with your contractor because they can do that. Besides you clean the filters. That's the first thing. Please clean your filters. And the duck, sure. the duck cleaning companies, if you go with a NADCA certified duck cleaning company, they also do mini splits. So the companies that I work with, they go right out and they'll do a mini split just like they do your traditional HVAC. So you must do it. My recommendation is at least every two years to three years for ducks. So with a mini split, do you think it would be more or less or about the same, Ted? I, I like to, you know, it really depends on the conditions. That's a loaded question. Since that depends on what how, kind of house you live in. We have newer houses that don't have a lot of, they're well insulated. They don't have a lot of particulate matter moving around. So they're not getting a lot of dust and pollen moving through the walls into interior space. Then you have an old house that might have horsehair plaster. And yep. constantly just shedding particles all the time. You might live by a dirt road. And, and again, that is going to move into your house. That is just happens. So you might be every year. I don't necessarily know that we've needed to go any more or, or any more frequent than a year, but that's something that your contractor should help you understand. We, and the reason I say the dirt road is we had a, a unit. It was kind of a, kind of a security shed at, at a facility and there was a dirt road leading up to the security shed. And so he was always opening the door for customers, but that constantly got this red, this dust moving in. And so that needed actually every six months, it needed to be cleaned because it got so much dust build up on the uh, coil and blower. Yeah. And I really recommend having somebody come out and take a look at the entire system once a year. Yes. Just because if you've got debris built up on the outside compressor, just because maybe you've got trees and it's grabbing some leaves inside there, or you've got just mold and mildew build up on the outside of that thing in the, in the, in the in the cooling or heating part of it out there in those fins, I think it's just having somebody eyeball it once a year is smart preventative maintenance because many times that professional will go, hey, if we don't clean this up right now in another year, this is going to be a big problem. Yep, exactly. Chad, just talk a little bit about the sear rating and how we started to see a little bit more mold growth when we went to a better sear rating and how you accommodated for that at Mitsubishi Train. Yep, so... We're talking about it, it, not on the system, but interior kind of moisture changes that could encourage mold growth. So what happened with high sear systems, with anybody's high sear system, uh, traditional air conditioners or not, the first move was to, to go like higher sear. And it's the same thing that, that car, car manufacturers want to say, now we get 100 miles to the gallon versus 12. That, that, that sounds great in theory. With air conditioners and heat pumps, you have to be mindful of that that originally when some of these manufacturers came out with these high sear products that sear rating used to be great when it was 10, you have a 10 sear air conditioner. 
And then it went to 12 and 15. And now we're seeing some of our mini splits and other manufacturers 30 plus sear. But when they originally started doing this, manufacturers were not uh, uh, paying attention to that ratio we talked about earlier, the sensible heat ratio. And for, for like Mitsubishi, we, we saw this a while ago and started seeing is that when we moved that sear up, we had a more high performance system. If we didn't make some changes in the algorithms, we could see a decline in how much moisture removed. So our factories quickly adjusted to that and started to make sure that we maintain those, those ratios so that we wouldn't cause issues at the house. So that's, again, not every manufacturer has done that today. You still see some really high sear ratings, but not a great sensible heat ratio. And that's where you have to be very careful. Unless you're in California or you're in the desert where there's no humidity, everywhere else has to pay attention to that at sensible heat ratio. Excellent. Excellent. So what are you seeing these days as far as technology moving forward? I know that we're starting to see apps for these things and, and controlling systems. You don't have to always reach over to that thermostat. What are you seeing things and how they're going with smart home tech? Yeah, so a few things. We certainly have a, a, an app that we use. You can use from your, your smartphone and, and change the temperature in every room if you have more than one. There, there are lots of things there. Moving forward, we'd like to see more understanding of the, how the equipment is working. And if there is a problem that immediately sends a notice, which is what we're doing to, to the phone, but it can also then, if you want to include your contractor, then if you're having an issue that I was guilty of one, I, I did not change my filter and I got an error code. And so I know, right. Of course, cause I, I was building filters. Yeah. So all the sawdust clogged to the filter. And so anyway, so it's a simple code. You look it up, but on the, if the app, you have the app, it'll tell you what that fault code is. So that's a simple one. Okay. Change your. Now, if you, for some reason have like a power spike or some kind of other anomaly, then it would be great for your contractor to see that and then recognize that. And then he has the opportunity to contact the homeowner preemptively and say, look, I, I see what you have. Would you like me to come? take care of that. So it's going to allow the homeowner and the, and the contractor to, to provide you know, better service for the homeowner, but also the homeowner to be, have a better working system. But there are all kinds of things that we can work into that. There are, are apps that monitor outdoor temperature and that also look at like PM 2.5, which is particulate matters, 2.5 microns and smaller, which can, which are not good for people to breathe. There are apps that show you what is in your environment. And if, say, if that's happening, you have an event, like a fire, like in the Pacific Northwest, you don't want your your system pulling in fresh air from the outdoors during those events. It may only last five months. Exactly. So, so these are all things that the science is getting better and better. And it, it's, again, not going to, it's not going to affect the consumer. They're not going to have to, like, turn on their ERV to, to not pull in air or turn it off. It's all, the goal is to get it all integrated so it's smart. I mean. Imagine all the technology in our phone today, five, 10, 15 years yeah. ago. Like you can't imagine that. And that's the whole thing of getting all your mechanicals did the same. What's cool is you guys have joined up this last year with the Home Connectivity Alliance. And so that is that whole group of people like Samsung. And of course, Train as a company has, GE Appliances, Electrolux. All these guys have come together to try to make smart home things work together. So down the road, and it's not today, but the overall plan is going to be, and we talked to uh, Chiefs, what was that? Last, earlier this year, we talked, had a conversation with uh, Yung Ho Choi, who's from Samsung, who's the president of this group. And he's saying that down the road, you'll be able to grab a temperature from the Samsung TV and be able to get a temperature from that or the GE washer and dryer in the laundry room. And there's going to be a lot more information that everybody is, is going to be able to share within each other to make products more interesting and, and, and function so much better. Sure. What Samsung told Eric and I was that we want to think about technology in a home like the door at the bank. You walk up to the door and it just opens for you and closes for you. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to apply any knowledge or waste your time doing anything. It just does it for you. So I think that's where the whole thing is going. And Eric's such a, uh, he's like our tech specialist. Eric knows everything about tech. So he is Mr. Smart Home <laughs> and then some. So, <laughs> and it's important how all these things work together and especially in the healthy home space, because we're looking at 
I want people to know what their carbon monoxide is, what their particulate matter 2.5 is, VOCs. I mean, all of these things are important to how I assess a home. So any type of sensor system that a consumer can have when I come in to investigate helps me tremendously. It, it does. And that sensor technology is critical. It's, it's getting a, a lot better. And there's some, there's some good ones out there, but you know, they're, they're really, either the really, really amazing ones are cost prohibitive for, for almost any homeowner to, to do their whole house. But you definitely can get some that really monitor the critical ones. And then the idea is that you don't have to tell a system like, oh, okay, we're using a gas stove and the hood is not extracting enough. So we're going to pump in some new fresh air. You shouldn't have to do any of that. That should all be built in. And I think that's what you're starting to see with some of the manufacturers that are putting, that they not only are they making traditional HVAC or TVs or, you know, phones, but they're in refrigerators, but now they're looking at smart hoods to integrate in that system. And so that, that's again, what Panasonic has it too, with their, their technology that they have their ERVs and bath fans all connected hood. And that is critical because I think that people just expect that their homes are supposed to be healthy. And if you've been in this industry that most homes are not healthy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some days you have a headache and you don't know why. That's how I kind of got into this. My okay. house we rented before we bought this house. I, I noticed when I traveled, I didn't have headaches. And when I came home, I had headaches and it wasn't for drinking wine. That, I mean, that's usually my excuse. It's not. But <laughs> whiskey on this side. Yeah. No, it wasn't. But when we, when I looked at the air handler and I just started working for Mitsubishi, I, I didn't see anything wrong with the air handler, but I noticed this appendage off the side. It was a humidifier. Well, I just happened to open it up. It was completely oh. full of black mold. And did you get sinus infections too? That's, that's a contributor for sinus infections, ear infections, pneumonia, Absolutely. bronchitis. You got it all going on. Yep. And at that time, our kids were one in three. And oh, yeah. So prime for yeah. that. Prime for yeah. that. So the guy who owned the house did change it all out. We were only there for another year and a half, but that's what got me started thinking about indoor air quality. And, and because I was just like, this is terrible. Like if I felt this bad, it, it, it did not allow me to work to my optimal level when I was working at home. What is it doing to my kids? And so that's how it all started. So it's, and this is why we're trying to get builders to bring it. All the new houses really need to be, have some type of air filtration system smart home technology because we can't, we can't have new home buyers expecting they're getting all this already because they're not, unless you have a really good builder, because we have enough problems trying to fix old houses. We don't need a whole new crop of new houses every year that, so. And that's what's happening. Unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that a lot of the new construction, it keeps me in business. It's, it's problematic right from the get-go. Somebody thinks they're going to buy a home and it's going to be perfect. And unfortunately, there's a lot of things wrong. So, and some of these things homeowners do that's why the education piece is key because homeowners actually do stuff unbeknownst to them, to their own home environment that creates a problem. You could have a lot of people living in the space. You can have high, you know, carbon dioxide coming out. Yeah. So that can make you feel sleepy and give you headaches. You can have high particulate matter. You're storing 50 paint cans in your house because you think you're going to paint two months <laughs> from now and you make a VOC soup mess. So we do sure. these things too. So it's, it's a, it's a trifold approach. We need technology and the three people that are the keys are right on this call. So we need Eric to talk about technology and how it can work for us and help us make us smarter. We need someone like me who's educating the public about what not to do, because even if you have the tech, you might do stupid stuff. And so we don't want you to do that. And then you need Chad because Chad's going to teach you about building science and why it's important. And these three things have to work together to create a healthy home. So it's kind of really cool that we're all on this call. Absolutely. I agree 100%. What do you think are the current challenges now with builders that you're seeing out there with new home construction that you're running into with builders, maybe not fully understanding the high performance building. What are some of the challenges that you're running into that you see in today's newest constructed sure. homes? Well, you're in what we call the land of unicorns, by the way, uh, Eric, Hi. because we have builders and codes <laughs> that want people to build healthy houses and efficient electric houses. Yeah. So we get those builders and they're great. And then I'm in the South. And then we, this is a perfect example of being in the South where we have builders that don't necessarily, they, they just go build a code. And, and then you go to some states in the South that really don't follow any building code. So they don't follow Florida. a code, an IACC 2015 or 18 or 21 code. There are, there are a couple of states that don't follow that code. Now they have local building jurisdictions that, you know, have a code prescribed, but they don't follow what we're seeing today as being the best way to build a house. 
So with that, you have builders that are not following you guys or any of the other building science traders or building tech technology traders. So they're building it like they've only known how to build. And unless their lumber yard is bringing in a vendor to show them how to tape seams and sill plates and fresh air and test and ductwork testing, duct blaster, they're going to build the same house that probably was built 30 years ago. And what's a blower door, right? <laughs> and so, <laughs> so you're going to get that. And even if they're building down the current code, which again, states have a you know, time, they don't have to follow the newest code. If they're in a 2012 code that they're building by, that's like kind of building a, a car today that has a specification from 2001. You're like, why would you buy that car? Why not buy the new one? But builders sometimes don't make that change. And so that's why it's, it's hard for consumers when they go into a, a, in their locality, a builder that has a good reputation. So they expect all these things, but they're not necessarily getting all those things. And so that then they wonder why in 10 years there might be some mold or again, the worst part is they never uncovered the mold. It's, it's behind the drywall and, but they just know they're not feeling well and they never know why that's the problem. Well, it's amazing. I was just down in Florida here and it's, it's one of those things I get down into Florida, not to pick on Florida, but I walk in, I walk into homes in Florida and go, why don't you guys deal with humidity down? <laughs> Florida keeps me in business. Florida. <laughs> you know, and, and so Florida <laughs> is just Alabama. There's so much humidity and it's so, it's such a really tough market for HVAC. Before you get, if you had a really giant air conditioner and you could definitely get, be comfortable when the house was leaky, because the interesting thing is, is that when the house leaks in the summer, you're getting hot air coming into the house so that your air conditioner is going to run longer. So, and you have some negative pressure on the house and it's pulling outside of your in. You're like, all right, that's driving the load up. So the air conditioner runs longer. You could hit the right mix and be comfortable <laughs> if you're lucky, but that's not going to happen at all. It's like crap. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's really, so most, a lot of, even while well, my team or just our traditional, our, our normal sales team that deals with the distributors and HVAC contractors, they are definitely seeing most of the builds they do in Florida now have a supplemental dehumidifier. And that's why Nikki from Ultra Air, I've been friends. We, we've known that that is critical for all new construction. And we did a, a seminar probably seven years ago for Florida builders and tried to help them understand, like, you really, really need to have supplemental dehumidification because I work for a heat pump air conditioning company and it does not do enough in some climate zones. And it's not the, the fault of the HVAC. It's the fact that it has a really tight envelope and it is a, you have a lot of moisture there and you're in Florida where it's a ton of moisture. Chad, so do we, so I guess this is a good example. So in Florida, what happens a lot is that there are portions of Florida where they will get cold spells. And so it will go down to 60, let's say even 70, and the homeowner shuts off all their HVAC yep. and the house gets cold. And then all of a sudden, a couple of days later, you get this influx of 85 degrees with high humidity and the house just sweats. Mm -hmm. And you start seeing this water running down the inside of a house in Florida and people are like, oh, my God, what's happening? Yeah. How do they control that? And, and usually what we recommend, obviously, is putting on a, a dehumidifier, a whole house dehumidifier that runs when you aren't using your temperatures. You're not using your HVAC system. You'll still have a dehu that runs and circulates that air. That's important. How about with mini splits? I mean, is that something that you install in Florida and how do you ca counteract something like that happening? Well, you, you, we definitely do. Florida is a huge market for us because you have so many lanai's and, and other closing in screened porches to, to use as uh, conditioned space. So we, we do a, a lot of business in Florida not only in the retrofit uh, business, but new construction, whether they're small, single family or they're 10,000 square foot, you know, mega mansions, we use them. And, and you get, it all comes back to that, that load and having a good building scientist that, you know, that you either work with, or if you've got a great HERS rater who has been HERS certified and they understand the components of the house and, and they do more than just do the load. They really look at how the envelope is built, your control layers on, on, your, on your exterior, how much ventilation is required or needed, and how much moisture that's going to bring in when you bring in fresh air from the south. So you're going to need fresh air in a newer house. But when you're bringing in fresh air from Florida in the middle of summer, a lot of moisture, a lot of heat, that is going to add to the load of not only the temperature, but also the latent side. 
So all those things, I mean, it sounds technical and it is because today's homes are complex. Yes, they're complex. And so that's why builders really have to start leaning on if they're not ready, leaning on some of their professional trades to assist them. And then that's going to cost them. So they needed to pass it on to the consumer and explain to the consumer why their house might be $5,000 more than a builder has done this. And that gives the builder the opportunity to show them why they're better and then provide a better product and have less callbacks. And so it's just, it's a, and this is why we tr- constantly try to train and I'm glad you guys, we try to get to consumers too, but it, it's, if we get everyone understanding that there's a problem in, in new construction where they don't make these changes, the homeowners can ask those questions. And if they're asking the questions and the HVAC cunt already knows the answer, the builder's not there yet, we got two out of three. So you got a good chance they may make some of those changes. Excellent. Well, it was raining in my hotel room in February <laughs> in Orlando when I was down there for the builder show. I mean, yeah. we had a couple of days that were in the 50s. I was still running around in my shorts. Everybody was that was a local was looking like I was insane, but it was warm for me. And all of a sudden, we're 82 degrees and high humidity. And I had water dripping off my light fixture in the room. So I ended up, yeah, I ended up sitting there enforcing the AC to work by turning the temperature up to the room <laughs> to 78, got it nice and hot, and then cranked it down to 65 to let the AC run to try to use it as a dehumidifier. Because oh, no. there in that hotel, it was a four-star hotel. Yep. There was no dehumidifier in that building. That is, that, that is really funny. You basically use your own reheat there. But that's the problem. And, and, and this is, it is a big problem. When we call the shoulder seasons uh, in the spring and the fall, when you don't require heating or cooling, especially cooling, and you do have that humidity. And so people use relative humidity as the, the benchmark, which really is not what you want when you're designing HVAC. It's dew point. And for your listeners that don't know what dew point is, you can find that on your app. You can look at your local weather and see what dew point is. And if the dew point is really low, then it's going to be really, it's going to be really humid. It's going to be really humid. Because if water, or excuse me, it's really high. Sorry, excuse me. If the, if the dew point is really high, because if water condenses, that's where a dew point is. If it condenses at a high temperature, then there's a ton of moisture in the air. Relative humidity is going to change from the morning when it's 60 to the afternoon when it's 80. That relative humidity will change if you look at it. But the amount of moisture in the air is insane. And so it's relative humidity doesn't really tell you what you need to know, but dew point does. So during those shoulder months and you might have a dew point that's really high and no air conditioner or dehumidifier, water will start condensing and it's, but it's only 72, it's only 68, but all of a sudden the dew point's so high, you can get condensation. And so that's where you really need to have if you if you have that opportunity to get a dehumidifier, do that. It really is going to help. You know, Chad, we're running out of time here. What other stuff have we not talked about today? Wow, let's see. Oh, one of the best ones. It's not directly HVAC. It's just this. Builders and HVAC contractors, the house needs to breathe. It's you, you built it too tight. If I hear that again. I mean, I chuckle because I go through it. I ask this question all the time. It's one of the first things I ask when I do a presentation. Can a house be built too tight? Absolutely. I'm all, oh, gosh, oh, it's got to breathe. <laughs> all right. Well, yes, it needs to breathe through a small hole in your ERV is really where it needs to breathe from, breathe from and nowhere else. Because <laughs> if you ask consumers where their air comes from, they're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, the air in your house comes from Somewhere. Sure. Right. Or it's, crawl space. Yes. Yep. or it's coming through your walls, whether dead animals, mice, bugs, they just die in your walls. It's normal. And you're pulling air in through all those places. So wouldn't you rather it come from a really nice metal pipe that has a really nice filter before it even gets in your house? <laughs> that's where you want to breathe. So I think that's the thing that consumers, if they hear that from a builder or an HVAC contractor, that they really need to, to read up on a little bit and then talk to their contractor about it more. Because that is, the more we build, the tighter we want to get. That is true. But you really need to ventilate. And if you do that right, you do get the best house, period. So that's the one thing is you can't really build too tight. Nice, Chad. Thanks for coming on today, Chad. Uh, Thank you, Chad. From Mitsubishi Train. Yeah, awesome stuff. We will have to do this again. Yeah, thank you. I would love to. 
For sure. Excellent. Well, I'm Eric G. And I'm Caroline B. And you've been listening to Around the House. Eric G from around the house. Are you planning a decking or siding project this year? If you are, you've got to check out my friends at Millboard. Millboard is a completely different kind of composite decking and cladding that enhances outdoor spaces with enduring distinction. Hand molded from the finest oak, it realistically mimics the natural grain and color of premium hardwood. If you're looking for something that doesn't look like plastic and instead real wood, check out millboard.com. Make sure and check out that interview we did just a few weeks back. That's millboard.com.